Welcome to the City Reach Baptist podcast. If you would like more information about the life of our church, please go to our website at cityreach.com.au or like us on Facebook. We hope you enjoy this message. Well, good evening, church. It is a huge honour for me to be with you, uh, to be able to share and, and to look at this word with you. This book of Ephesians that we're looking at, this incredible letter that was written to the church in Ephesus uh, is a massive, important book in, uh, in my life, but also an important book uh, in this great narrative, this great story that is the Scriptures. What I love about this section is that Paul kicks it off with this word, therefore. I love it whenever Paul puts therefore in because what it does is it's, it's kind of looking back at everything that has happened before and leading up to this point. So for us to really get a grasp on this text this evening, it's, it's really important for us to just take a few moments to have a look at what Paul has uh, written when he's inspired by the Spirit and, and uh, written to this church in Ephesus. He takes a lot of time talking about the incredible spiritual blessings that we have through Christ. And he lays out, and we see this beautiful Trinitarian view of salvation, that it is this mission of God, this, this beautiful, beautiful picture of the work of this glorious grace. And it, it kind of uh, culminates beautifully into Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 to 10, where it says, For by grace... You have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, for it is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. He's been building this idea and and of uh, this salvation we have in Christ. And he, he, he sums it up beautifully in this beautiful verse in, in saying that we have been given salvation through faith, that it is nothing that you could ever do, but it is solely upon what Christ has done for us. What an incredible truth. Can we just pause there for a second? You know, I gr- I've grown up in church and I I've, I've, was one of those kids who was like around kids' church, through youth group, through all of those things. And I'm not sure of what your story is, but, you know, I, I got a little bit lax on this beautiful gospel. And I am having to constantly remind myself of the beauty of it. Please don't ever get bored of this idea of, oh, yes, saved by grace. Like we're, we're singing about this awesome Mighty God and a beautiful worship tonight. We're singing about this awesome, mighty God who is just deserved of all of our praise and all of our glory, and yet He steps down in humility and pays the price for you and me. Like that is just an astounding truth. Please never ever get over that. Please never ever graduate from the gospel. You can never do so. It is an incredible, beautiful thing. And so Paul has been building this idea and and he, he goes through and he talks about the body of Christ. He says we are one. 
And this is what the Spirit has done, is that we've been now grafted onto this beautiful vine. Gentiles, Jews, all ages, all denominations, all races have all come together to make up this beautiful body of Christ. And he, he talks about this incredible work of the Spirit. And in chapter 3, he, he builds on that idea of that, that, that this is the gospel that has been revealed, that we now can be grafted into this, this, this beautiful body. So in chapter 4, he swings things around and he starts to talk a little bit more practically. As you, as you see in verse, from chapter 4 onwards, he, he talks about that you know, he, he's exhorting husbands and wives and he, he's, he talks very practical and all the things that we must do. But it's important that we as Christians must remember that before we get to what we must do, we must understand that you are saved by grace first. And Paul is very, very, um, he urges and is very um, strategic in making sure that they understand that before they go through and they look at their duty, they must first understand their doctrine. If you think about it, most of your life is based upon what you believe. Your, your actions follow what you believe. One of my heroes in the faith is this man called Diedrich Bonhoeffer. And he famously quoted that actions must follow what you believe, otherwise you can never claim to believe it. Every aspect of your life, every decision you make is based upon the things that you believe. Think about it. The team that you barrack for, right? the sporting team that you go for, you go for them based on a set of doctrines that you have set up, things that you believe in your life, convictions. Now, I'm a West Coast man, and sadly, we went down to the Swannies early today, which is devastating. But I still believe we're the best team in the AFL. And I'll barrack for them because I believe they are. Now, this goes through every aspect of your life, the way that you raise your children, the uni course, the, the, the way that you treat people is actually based solely on what you believe, your doctrines, your convictions. And so Paul, if you look actually knowing this, that Paul in a lot of his letters, he sets up his letters without laying doctrine before he goes to duty. He, 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 he builds the things that they must believe first, the gospel, and then he goes, okay, knowing this, therefore, how are you supposed to act? And in fact, the Bible is really big on this. If you look in Proverbs chapter 1, you see that the, the, the author, uh, Solomon, actually in, in chapter 1 verse 2, it says, the, this is the purpose of Proverbs, is to know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice and equity, to give prudence to the simple, Knowledge and discretion to the youth. Let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance. To understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles. For the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. And then he transitions. He says, Hear, my son, your faithful instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching. For they are a graceful garland for your head and a pendant around your neck. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. 
If they say, come with us, let us lie and wait for blood. Let us ambush the innocent without reason. Like Sheol, let us swallow them alive and, sorry, swallow them alive and whole, like the ones that go down to the pit. And, and it goes forward and it lays out their actions. You see, it, it, they, the, the, um, in Solomon, when he's writing this, is he lays out truth. He says, build wisdom in your life. He says, get wisdom, get instructions. Understand the fear of the Lord because that's the beginning of wisdom. And he says, why? Because sinners will entice you. Because there will be things in life that are wanting to direct you away from what God has instructed. But he says, first of all, you've got to know what you believe. This is why we spend every Sunday gathering around the word of God. This is why we get into groups and we gather around the Word of God because it is so important that we are building our lives on the truth of the Word of God rather than on anything else that is thrown at us. And you and I both know that we are being preached at from every different angle in life, right? You turn on your television and it's telling you whatever it wants you to believe. It may not be as simple as someone up here telling you, you know, you've got to follow the Word of God, but it is subtle things through TV shows, through, through everything, is wanting to persuade you to live and believe a certain thing. Because I understand this truth, that the, your doctrine dictates your duty. And Paul knows this. And so this is why he writes this way. He knows that doctrine dictates duty, that conviction directs conduct. So he lays out this therefore in saying, okay, I've established this doctrine, I've established this truth, this gospel, the fact that your actions cannot save you. It is solely dependent upon Jesus Christ. And he says, now because of this, how are you now supposed to live? What are you, as you as Christians, what are you supposed to do in response to this? Where are you supposed to go? And it's as this verse says, it says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, I urge you, what I love is scholars talk about this is Paul the beggar. If you look in all of this, he is always urging the church. He's begging them. He's saying, I urge you to live in a way that is worthy, a manner that is worthy of this gospel, that is worthy of the calling that you have been called. He calls us, to, he urges us, he begs us to go and follow this. And so tonight, I urge you, I beg you to walk worthy of the manner of the gospel for what you've been called. That word worthy brings up these two ideas. It talks about a life that does not clash with and it also talks about a balance, right? So when Paul is saying that we should walk worthy, what he is, is calling the church to do is he's saying, don't live a life that clashes with the truth of the gospel. Amen. He's saying that you are to be people who when you hear this truth and when your life is changed by this truth because that's what the gospel is, it's the power to set us free. He says, then go and live accordingly. You, you can't go and live the same. It's, it's, you're, you're changed. It's, it's a new day. It is new. So don't live a life that clashes with it. But then he also talks about this balance. He, he talks about that because of this incredible freedom that we have, that our life should live in, in balance of that. 
not for our salvation, but because of our salvation. And so as I am encouraging you and exhorting you through these words, I, I, I want you to keep at the forefront of your mind the truth of the gospel. So what does he then call them to do? How do we walk worthy? He says in verse 2, with all humility. In fact, what he does, he actually lays out four things. And these four things that he calls the church to or shows them how to walk worthy, that he calls them to go, okay, if you're walking worthy, this is what it looks like. These character things, that if you are to then go and live these lives as the rest of Ephesians is about, like as married couples and is about as people, he's like, there, there's these character traits that you must be building into your life, working with the Spirit in building these into your life. And they kind of build upon each other, as you'll see. So he says, you are to work with all humility, now, I remember when I first started studying this text, I was thinking, of all the ways, all the directions that Paul could go, he chooses humility as the foundation of this thing. It's interesting. He's like, okay, so now Jesus has died for you, and that's, that's brilliant, and that's this great truth. How do you respond? Humility. Not power, not dominance, not anything else, but humility. This is a, uh, something that is used constantly in, in Paul's writing. He, he's constantly calling us to be humble. And, and in fact, the reason why he calls us to be humble is because the gospel is based upon a humble saviour. Philippians 2 talks about this, that he, he did not count himself worthy, but he came and he laid down his life. And because of this, he is exalted and his name is above every other name. So the, the, the reason why this is the foundation of ours being walking worthy is because we are walking in step with Jesus. That, that, that because of what Christ has done, he says, okay, now because of what Christ has done, you now can truly be humble. Humility is not this idea of thinking less of yourself. Humility is not about self-esteem. Humility is actually thinking less about yourself. It's thinking about yourself less often. Rather than building your life upon you and what you want to do, it is going, I am going to humbly lay down my life in following after Jesus. And so he is saying that the, uh, the foundation of us living a life that is worthy of this salvation is thinking less about ourselves. So what do we think of? We think of Christ. We think of his truth. We think of others. Just as Jesus laid out uh, to the, the scribes and the, the priests when they asked him, they said, well, what is the greatest law? And he says, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And he said, the second is to love your neighbor as yourself. You cannot actually do that if you are not starting from a position of humility. You are too busy caught up with yourself. Get too caught up in what you want to do rather than allowing God to work through your life. Because true salvation starts and works 
in humility. So he kicks things off with humility. And from there, he, he, he goes even further and he says um, that with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another, eager to maintain the unity. The second thing that he calls us to in walking in a manner that is worthy is gentleness. What picture runs through your head when you think of the word gentleness? I don't know about you, but the first thing that pops in my mind is weakness. Like When I think of gentleness, I think of some weak, pithy person who just has no backbone and is, you know, just blown in the wind. And in fact, if you look, uh, I, I looked this up in, a, in the Oxford Dictionary, it's defined as someone who is timid or deficient of courage or spirit. Why would Christ call us to be this? Well, in fact, the biblical meaning is something that is completely different. The biblical meaning is, is, is from this Greek word. I'm not even going to attempt to uh, pronounce it. <laughs> uh, but it is this. It is to be mild-spirited or self-controlled. Opposite to vindictive or vengeance. So it calls us to be humble and for us to truly be gentle, to, to exhibit this gentleness or meekness, which it can also be translated into, he calls us, uh, sorry, for us to truly be gentle, it actually requires us to be humble first. So from humility, he then calls us to be gentle. This is something that is uh, talked about in, in, about in Jesus' character. It says that he is meek in Matthew eleven twenty nine. It's a fruit of the Spirit in Galatians five twenty three. So that the biblical word is nothing close to weakness or cowardice. It is actually self control. The word that that Greek word was actually used when they defined a tamed wild animal. So I think of one of those lions that has all the same power, that has still the potential to rip your throat out, but tamed. So what God is calling us is to be people who are meek, that actually have self-control of self-control of our life. That means that we are controlled by nothing else but by God. This is someone who is not going to use their power and authority to try and, and manipulate and intimidate. That is the opposite to meekness. Meekness is the ability to know that you can do those things, but have control over those things. Again, have a look at our culture around us. It is all about the weak trying to pray, I mean, the, the, sorry, the strong praying on the weak, having um, dominating. If we can get enough people behind us, we can intimidate these people to say and do what we want to do. We see it all the time in, 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 with violence of, of, of men against women in, in, in homes. And it, it is, this, is the, this is antithetical to what uh, meekness is all about. 
And I, wanna, I really want to urge you and encourage you, how are you doing with this? How's your gentleness going? To husbands, are you leading your family with humility and gentleness? Or are you trying to dominate and intimidate to get your way? In your workplace, is this what you're doing? Trying to manipulate, to dominate, to gain control. This is not a manner that is worthy of the gospel. And I hope that challenges you tonight. Because it challenges me. We see uh, meekness shown in the life of David in, in 1 Samuel where he very much could have killed Saul. But instead he, he, knows, he, he says that I'm not, I would not lay hands on God's anointed. He, he doesn't. He had all the power in that moment to kill that man. But he doesn't. He shows meekness. We, Moses was meek yet still called people out. Pharaoh, he calls Pharaoh out and, and he stands firm on, on what God has called him to do. Yet he was a meek man. Meekness is not weakness. Meekness is tamed power. Meekness is self-control. In fact, the, the, the Bible talks very much on, on self-control and, and I, I want to just lead you to a, a, a proverb on this. Um, in, it's Proverbs chapter 16, verses 32. It says this, Whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who takes the city. Let me read that again. Whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. It is easy to lose control. It is harder to contain yourself and to live in a manner that is worthy of the gospel, that is walking in step with the Spirit, is one of gentleness. Because we understand that all power comes through Jesus. So Paul, he lays out for them to walk in a manner that is worthy. He says, humility. Then he builds upon that. He says, humility makes way to gentleness. And then he goes on and he says, uh, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, with patience. Patience requires humility and gentleness. Don't you reckon? <laughs> it requires us to set ourselves aside and not try and exert ourselves. I've seen this a lot recently. I have uh, two beautiful daughters. Uh, one is four. Her name is Elsa and uh, not named after Frozen. I just need to make sure that is very clear. <laughs> that is the most common question. And uh, my, uh, my second youngest, her name is Solidea, and uh, they're both beautiful, but Gee, they test your patience, right? Parents, can I get an amen? Like there is just, there's something about kids who just, they're, they're brilliant and you just love them, but sometimes you love them because you have to. And it requires such serious patience and setting yourself aside. And, and, and I know this because we live busy lives. As, 
Like, you know, at the, I've just planted a church. Uh, I, I work in a school and I, I'm studying theology and we're moving house. And it's, I'm in this season at the moment where it's just like I'm just juggling about a trillion balls in the air at the same time. And yet my kids are demanding my attention. And I just, and just feel just like I'm torn. And because all they know is that they just want dad's attention, Right? And all they know is their own issues and what they're, you know, like whatever's going on in their minds at this point in time. But I understand that it takes humility and gentleness to be patient. I've got to set myself aside. Patience means long-tempered and long-suffering. Now, we've got to understand that as Paul is talking to this church, he's, he's talking to this church in Asia Minor, in Ephesus, right? Knowing full well that they, that a lot of them, by following Christ, will be persecuted. Some will be killed. Some will be tortured slowly. Some will be brutally beaten. Some will be exiled from their families. Paul is, is, is talking to this church in, in knowing that he is calling them that when they are being saved by Christ, that they are now called to a life of long-suffering and long-temperedness. This is the Christian life. To be patient. To, 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 to hold on to the truth so much that no matter what culture is throwing at you, no matter what uh, life brings, that you will stand firm on the truth of the gospel and hang on. Patience. Noah spent 120 years building a boat, nowhere near any water, and possibly never ever seeing rain. Patience. Right? Isaiah. I... I've just been in raptures over Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 6, we see this uh, incredible picture where he has this vision where he sees God and it's almost comical because he, well, this, isn't, this bit's not comical, but he sees this picture of God and these angels, there's these seraphim singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And, and Isaiah, this holy man, falls down on his knees and he's like, I am a wretched sinner. And one of these seraphims grabs the, this coal from the altar and he touches his lips and he says, your sins have been atoned for. It's beautiful foreshadowing of salvation, right? And then as the story goes in, in, in verse 9, God's like, who shall I send? Who am I going to send out from this? Which is hilarious because it's like, who else is there? And what other choice does Isaiah have? He's like, I'll go. And, and, and as, the, the, as it goes on, this, God calls me. He says, you know, I'm calling you. And he's, he says, I'm, I want you to declare this truth, but it's going to block their ears. It's going to harden their hearts. And like, Isaiah is called to patience. Because ultimately, this, the, 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 the gospel that he declares to these people, this, this truth that he declares to these people is ignored. Israel sent into exile. What for, like, for what point was he called? Do you know what I mean? Like, you, you can look at that and be like, what? But he understood that this call of God outweighed anything and everything else. And so therefore, he was able to be patient and long-suffering. This is why it is so important that we never move on from the gospel. 
and that Paul spends a lot of time building this doctrine of the gospel in his first three chapters because he, he needs them to understand and be full of the affection that they have for Christ so that they can be long-suffering. You can suffer anything if you know that there is hope at the end of it. You can. And we don't, we don't follow a vain hope at all. Bless you. We don't, we don't follow a vain hope. We, we in fact, we follow a, a hope that is strong and secure, right, church? Yeah. We, we follow a, a hope that is not, oh, I hope Jesus returns one day. You know, like of just like this vain hope of like, I hope West Coast win the grand final at the end of the year. I don't know. But we know because Christ has promised us that he shall return and it will be glorious and it will be worth the suffering. It will be worth the patience. It will be worth it, church. So I encourage you, be patient. Stand strong. Do not be swayed. Do not. Because this hope that we have is eternally worth it. Right? This is why and how we can be patient. Band, if you want to join me, that would be great. Just so they think that I'm going to finish soon. <laughs> Joking. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, to be, to be meek means that you have that you've finished with yourself altogether. Let me read that again. Martin Lloyd-Jones says that to be, to be truly meek means that you have finished with yourself altogether. This is to look to the good news of the gospel, to set yourself aside, to know that you cannot do it. Because the last of these things, these four things that Paul calls us to, to walk worthy of the manner is forbearing love. He says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace, He says that we are to be bearing with one another in love. He brings us back to this love, this gospel love, this love that we know because Christ came and he died for us. Now, this love requires humility. It requires gentleness and it requires patience. This love requires all of us. And as he's writing to this church, as he's instructing us all this evening, he's saying that for us to be able to have this unity, to be an effective body, to be able to do and be on mission for the glory of this gospel, it requires us to bear with one another in love. A self-sacrificing love, a love that sets yourself aside, humility, that doesn't exert yourself with all power and intimidation, gentleness, a love that bears with, each other, bears with one another, patience. That church, this is, this is what he calls us to be as, his, as the saints, as his church, to bear with one another. And I want to encourage you that in, in your life, in, in, as, as a church, in, that you are unified under Christ following these things. Being patient with one another, bearing, long-suffering long with each other, 
with gentleness and humility, encouraging and exhorting one another. Because it is through this that we can truly go and be on mission, right? It is a selfless love that he calls us to. Not expecting anything else from anyone else, but putting yourself aside. How are you at it? How are you going with these things? We're going to go back into one of those songs again. And, and I would love it if we would take a moment to reflect on this. Now, I don't know about you, but when I look at these things, I look and I realize that I am insufficient. That even in my best ability, I will never measure up to a hint of gentleness, to an iota of patience. Now, this can lead you to a place of absolute hopelessness. But this is why it is important that Paul kicks this whole thing off of going gospel. Because in our inadequacies, in our failures, there's Jesus. And we can trust in this glorious gospel that he is sufficient. And it should lead us to this place of worship. Because He loves us regardless of these things. And He empowers us now to actually go and live out these things. So as we worship and as we take a moment to reflect, I want to encourage you to think on these things. How are you going in your gentleness? Are you working with the Spirit on these things? How are you going with your patience? How's your humility going? Are you imposing yourself on every situation? Where are you at with your love? Love for your people. Love for your family. Love for those who might uh, deride you and look down on you and speak ill of you. How are you going with these things? Let's pray and then let's stand and worship together. Father, we are so grateful for this incredible truth. This incredible truth, Lord, that you paid the price that we never could. And Jesus, as we look at walking worthy, I pray that this does not push us to try and earn our salvation in works or push us to try and reach a level that we could never. But let it push us to want to walk and follow after you, to actually turn our eyes on Jesus to actually follow after you, Lord Jesus. So I just pray for each and every person here. Holy Spirit, I pray that you will come and you will convict us, that you will sanctify us, that you will call us and, and, and direct us and, and show us areas that we might need to grow. And then allow us to, that to lead us to a place of worship so that your name might be exalted above every other name, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Father. Amen.